Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking to JT Taylor, who is the Senior Director of Fraud Investigations and Operations at IDME. We're going to be talking to JT about synthetic identity theft, what it is, why should we be concerned about it, and how we can prevent it. But before we do that, let's say hi to JT. JT, how are you doing? Hey, Mark. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Hey, my pleasure. Hey, so whereabouts are you located? Uh, so I'm coming to you today from Phoenix, Arizona. Nice. It's probably sunny and 70. No, it is raining and about 65 today, uh, of all things. the uh, wow. That's a rarity. It's a rarity around here, but we've gotten a lot of rain this year. Well, actually, you guys need it. I think the whole southwest, actually, pretty much everything, every, <laughs> anything in the south, um, but that whole, especially the south, the southwest is really, really, uh, what's the word, been going through like a long protracted drought. You're exactly right. And uh, it runs from all the way here, all the way over to San Diego. You're exactly right. What about yourself? Where, where am I talking to you at? I'm up in Seattle, and we have no shortage of precipitation, snow, what have you. So if you come up here, everybody, I have people visiting this last week, and, and you know I get tired of the rain, but they're like, oh, my gosh, it's so green. It's so nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. You know, one of my favorite uh, cocktails is actually in Seattle, well, over towards Bellevue. But, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar. What, like, what, what's, the, what's the name of the place? Uh, Black Bottle. Black bottle. Hmm. Yeah. Haven't have, yeah. haven't been in there. I, I actually live in Bellevue, so um, nice, it's, nice. Uh, that's got to be on my my I guess my next to do list to check that out. Uh, ask for the old fashioned. Yep, you're exactly the right. old fashioned. Yeah. Would will do. <laughs> so AJT, so, hey, before we start talking about synthetic identity theft, maybe could you just give us a little bit of info about your background and how you started to work in the fraud and investigations and operations space. Yeah, 100%. Uh, thanks for asking. So you're not going to find me on LinkedIn. So uh, I retired out of the federal government where I was a special agent with the U.S. Secret Service. And then prior to that, I was an intelligence officer in the intelligence community and then transferred over to the Secret Service. So, you know, the the identity is at the heart of really what you're doing as an intelligence officer as well as a, as a special agent with the Secret Service. You know, we Secret Service shares jurisdiction with the FBI when it comes to identity theft as well as cybercrime. So the two kind of melded together. And really, within the intelligence community, whenever you're operating in a foreign country, uh, identity as well as what's referred to as signature analysis, basically how loud an identity is being, whether it be on the internet or whether it be operating in a foreign environment, is really paramount. So I became uh, really aware back to an internet-enabled battlefield and let's say an internet-enabled identity back in the probably mid-2000s. And mm -hmm. at that point, you had uh, a number of video game platforms that were transitioning to identity, but you also had the beginnings of cryptocurrency with Second Life had one called the, the Al Dollar, things like this. So building out what's referred to as a personal legend, which is a, kind of an intelligence officer talk for uh, an alibi, so to speak, is who are you? And building out that legend, look, you've got to be familiar with what makes up an identity. What is it that makes you, you? So that's why I came to IDME whenever I got out. Uh, I had met our CEO back in 2014 when I was with President Obama. And I really liked the the product, I liked the overall program, and I really liked the whole credentialing space. So that, uh, in a nutshell, is kind of what brought me into the world of identity. Excellent. And I mean, the, the whole world of identity theft 
has kind of transformed. I mean, I remember when the uh, the bad guys would you know get in their car and drive around and just grab stuff out of mailboxes and then and try to do <laughs> you know things with that, and that was you know mildly annoying. Uh, but now it's gone. It's gone next next generation. What what are the bad guys doing to steal identity these days? You know, great question. So the fastest growing version of identity theft really has to do with synthetic identity theft. Uh, I would add a close second to that is social engineering. The aspects of social engineering that make it particularly devastating is that it impacts a lot of uh, disproportionate communities, such as our underrepresented communities, such as your elderly minority populations, immigrants to the country. And specific to synthetic identity theft, you're normally talking about incarcerated populations, but also children get hit with it. And so those two in particular are just quite sinister with how the, the overall crime takes place. The Federal Reserve currently puts synthetic identity theft as the fastest growing version. And uh, we're going to be talking a little bit today about how that takes place. But look, the national strategy for cybersecurity just came out of the White House here last week. And they put the number in 2021 at 300 million people were victims of identity theft. And that's coming out of the White House. It's a staggering, staggering number. 300 million people just in the U.S.? Because that's pretty much everybody then. <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, you're right. Exactly. So in one form or another, right? I know obviously identity theft takes a, a number of shape, but you've just, uh, the way I like to refer to it as, you just got to assume your information is out there based upon whether it be club memberships, whether it be uh, getting your email leaked out onto the dark web or some type of credential. Look, 80% of uh, hacks or data breaches these days have misuse of credentials at the heart of them, about 80%. So it goes to show you that your information's out there. And look, we bring in, there's roughly about 5,200 data breaches per year. Uh, I pull that number out of the Verizon data breach report. And I would uh, ask that everybody go check that out on an annual basis. But look, if there's 52 breaches per week, uh, chances are all of our information at one point or another is going to be in there. Okay, so those are breaches that we have, you know, relatively little control over because we're in yep. somebody's database and there's not much we can do about it. Right. So, you know, what what are some things that organizations should be doing? And then on the flip side, what should individuals be doing? So two things here. So I like to start with threat modeling. And threat modeling is something I picked up back at Secret Service, but you really want to understand what you're putting out there into the ether, Right. So taking an inventory of what you're actually putting out, whether it be email, your phone number, who you're signing up for, for various services, and then also the privacy policy associated with those services. When it comes down to you going out onto the internet, you probably click a cookie statement and you move on to other website. And that is a lot of companies attempt to be compliant with GDPR. Well, that's fantastic, but people actually do need to read those. Uh, I was doing an interview last week and I just happened to have read the privacy policy for my local grocery store and it had facial recognition. It could, they were allowed to make inferences to my race, ethnicity, veteran status, my intellectual abilities. I just don't understand why a grocery store needs that. <laughs> and I find it uh, troubling how much people, they haven't, they do not have informed consent when it comes to the amount of agency over their identity. And that's really where companies need to step in there and they need to do a better job of putting privacy policies, A, in plain English, understand that the data that you hold can be a liability because look, if it gets breached, 
you could be on the hook for that as a, as a corporation for uh, leaking that data out there. Also, the fact of, uh, look, in the latest cybersecurity strategy coming out of the White House, again, they've alluded to now there will be a duty of care when it comes down to software vendors. So you're going to have to be, your companies are going to have to start to take account for the amount of data that they're bringing in and storing, whether or not they actually use it, right? I think that's really where the credentialing space kind of fits. And IDME has done a good job of at least bringing forward the privacy to say, this is what is happening with your data. Do you consent to pick your federal agency, pick your state partner, um, and saying, do you consent to having this token of identity sent to them? And it's really putting the user back in control of their identity. Okay. So what I'm hearing you saying is companies need to be more transparent in terms of what they're, what they're collecting and how they're using it. Uh, at the same time, the consumers need to be more aware and take the time to go ahead and read these uh, privacy agreements which nobody does. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I would like to see the statistics on that. I mean, because I think you you, you uh, described it pretty accurately where most people just click through as, as quick as possible to get, you know, to the business at hand. Right. But um, which is which is pretty scary because some of those agreements, I mean, like you said, your your local grocery store is collecting facial recognition data. That's uh, <laughs> it's crazy. Pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, and then I'm also hearing you say on the individual side that they can use a platform or tool like IDME to improve the security. And I have to claim ignorance here. Maybe you can walk us through how IDME actually works. Yeah, so it really goes, it pays to go back in time to 2011. And that that's when uh, President Obama introduced the National Strategy for Trusted Identities in Cyberspace. And basically the need there was, how can you go online, do a secure transaction, and not lose your identity in the process. Uh, the the strategy called to called to the called to the idea that many more secure transactions, banking, uh, interacting with your local government or federal government, were happening more online and less in person. Okay, so it called for basically the use of a credential that you would go on and complete these secure transactions. Now it's important to note this is not to say you require this credential to go online. No, no. It was the credential was meant to be able to assert your identity online in a trusted manner, right? So it's that trust factor. Now, back during that time frame, so this is 2011 when that strategy came out, uh, Jeremy Grant, that uh, is over at the Better Identity Coalition, was really paramount in writing out how a the federal government could foster this environment through what's known as a public-private partnership, and really the the idea being that federal agencies would accept this credential. And then also the private partners would go out and create the, the credential and create this identity platform to do the verification. And that's really what IDME took and ran with. And in 2014, NIST came out with, hey, here's the credentialing plan. And here is the strong identity credentials that you can create to go assert your identity online. The strong one that we at IDME are famous for and a market leader in is what's known as the IAL2 credential. So that means identity assurance level two. What we're doing is we're marrying up an identity, right? So your name, your social, your date of birth, what have you. And we're marrying that to something that you have, such as a MFA, a cell phone device, and then also a trusted secret therein. So whenever you come on the platform, you can get a code sent to your phone, much like that you do with online banking. And that allows you to go and interact. Look, we're at 12 federal partners, 30 different states, 36 state agencies. Uh, 40 healthcare partners, and 500 brands. You can use that one credential at all of those, 
without having to go and log in at all those various platforms. So it's basically, a, is it a single sign-on type functionality as well? Or, I mean, once you have that, I have access to all those different platforms, or do I still have, do I still need a separate ID to log in with? Or am I using the ID me uh, credential to log in? Great question. So the, the credential itself is completely portable. However, depending on the partners, different states, different federal agencies have different requirements for the credential itself. Mm -hmm. From an ID me perspective, the credential is completely portable. You can go to all these various services. However, a state may require you to go ahead and log on to their platform, depending on how they've integrated ID me. We integrate with all the open protocols. So depending on how they've got us integrated, you, they may ask you to do it an additional verification check, but most of the time it's just a single sign on. Okay. So as an example of, of, of a use case here, I want to go to a certain government agency and maybe I want to pay my property taxes. Um, I want to go to another agency and maybe apply for benefits or something like that. And I can just use this credential and I don't, other than maybe doing an MFA or something, I don't really need to do any extra kind of um, authentication. Exactly. And you're not having to remember all these different username and passwords, right? So the uh, the use case here, I just went through it this morning, uh, being a veteran, I logged on to Veterans Affairs, I logged on to my account, I refilled a prescription, I took that, I then had to go over to the Internal Revenue Service to pull down my Git transcript so that I could uh, pay my taxes this year, being a good citizen. Mm -hmm. And I did that all in one seamless uh, time. I didn't have to lo log in and have all these different username and passwords. I go, I complete, the IRS honors my IL2 credential, takes it in, good to go. So what, I mean, just like any other type of identity theft uh, where people can go out and, you know, create an alias or cre create a, um, a copy of your identity and start applying for different benefits, what prevents these, you know, bad actors from going ahead and creating a false IDME credential? Other than the fact that, like you said, that they have, you, they're going to authenticate against something that you have, but, you know, if they if they can convince the IDME platform that, hey, this is my phone or this is my, you know, SMS uh, number, et cetera, uh, I, I guess that still could be an issue. Absolutely. I mean, and what we've seen out of the authentication of old that I'm sure most of your audience is familiar with, let's talk knowledge-based answers. Hey, uh, Mark, you lived on such and such street whenever you were 12. What was it? Things like this. The those types, that type of information, especially post Equifax hack, is out on the dark web, right? The fact that you would depend on that as an authentication mechanism for any type of, let's say, secure government benefit or secure state benefit, that should be the furthest thing from the would-be decision maker's mind. It just doesn't work anymore. So what you need to do is really test for depth of an identity. So what we're doing, at least on the IDME side, it's a, little, a lot more advanced than anything associated with the KVA is we're going to be tying that particular cell phone, in this case, to your question, to the actual account holder. We're doing that through author, authoritative resources such as the telcos themselves. So we're going to be testing for SIM tenure. So we're, we want to see how long that you've been associated with that SIM. And of course, this is all happening within about 200 milliseconds. But the reason why we're doing that is you you might have been a victim of a SIM swap, right? So, I was just going to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah, it, look, it's, a, it's a terrifying uh, instance. Uh, if anybody's ever been a victim of a SIM swap, whenever you go to turn on your phone and all of a sudden it doesn't make calls anymore, the battery's draining very quickly. Um, we've even had some insider threat issues associated with uh, telcos recently. So 
you might have a, a would-be insider threat at a cell phone provider that is actively allowing your SMS to get uh, taken over. With that being said, we're going to pick that up on the IDME side because we're going to be looking for how long you've been associated with that particular SIM or has there been recent port activity. Now, we look for a time period associated with that, and we combine all this in, with a device fingerprint. We uh, align that with financial records. So how long has Mark been associated with this identity? And is there consistency and depth to it? Instead of your synthetic identity, which has a synthetic identity theft where I combine real PII and fake information, it's not going to align in our system. So that's really why IDME is at the head of the synthetic identity theft defense market. Awesome. And I just learned a new term, SIM tenure. I like that. So, <laughs> Thanks, man. No, that's, that's good. I mean, it's, it, it, it's funny because I was seriously, I was, that was going to be my next question was about SIM swapping and you've already answered that. So that's, that's awesome. Um, so it, should anybody, everybody out there go ahead and, and register for an IDME credential or do you have to be part of an organization or you have to be, how does it work? One, I think so. Obviously I'm a little biased, but I, Let's talk about why you would, okay? Okay. If you want, if you want to go to all these various federal services that we're partnered up with, and we provide authentication uh, services for, so again, that's those twelve federal agencies right now, thirty state agencies, or excuse me, thirty states, thirty-six state agencies. So there's that reason alone. But even more, it get, we give you that opportunity to assert your identity securely online. Additionally, mm -hmm. you will absolutely love our privacy policy. We don't sell, trade, rent data. Full stop. What's neat about that is whenever you're going to the IRS, if you're going to the VA, you're going to state of Virginia, whatever you're doing, a screen will pop up and it'll say, Mark, you are going to be sharing your name, social email with this particular partner, whether it be the state, federal agency, et cetera. Are you okay with that? You, you click yes, and then it sends the data. That's how powerful it is to be able to say, I know exactly who is getting my data and I know why I want them to have my data so that I can go get my stated benefit. Additionally, some brands, again, we have about 500 brands, Apple, Amazon, et cetera. Some brands use us just because they want to offer specific discounts to specific groups, whether that be nurses, teachers, police officers, military, and they want to identify who's in a specific group and then offer them whatever type of discount. So that's, again, a benefit for the corporation to adopt us so that they can get that trusted identity associated with a stated benefit program. Excellent. Well, then how do you, um, how does this get paid for? Oh, great question. I haven't gotten that one. Thank you very much for asking that one. <laughs> so, it, but it actually takes me back to President Obama as a national strategy. It's actually the reason why you don't have uh, the credentialing environment the way that it was initially set out to be and as, as far as growth was. In 2011, uh, the idea being that every person would have this trusted credential that you'd be able to go out and go to the post office with, go to the IRS, et cetera. What happened was it became too expensive for the government to implement. Uh, at first, the, gov the government was going to pass on the cost to banks because the banks wanted that solution to be able to know who they were dealing with for know your customer rules, anti-money laundering rules. The banks balked at the price, and then government agencies balked at the verification at actually saying, um, I don't want to do the identity verification because that's going to cost us money. So there was a great study back in 2017, 2018, how much it would cost the Internal Revenue Service to generate one of these IL2 credentials. Okay. So if they did it over the phone, it was going to be $58 per credential. All right. If 
they did it in person, like at a taxpayer assistance center, it was going to be $89, according to the Government Accountability Office. IDME is doing that same thing, that same credential, and it's about 5x below the $50 cost. I mean, it's very cheap. And how we make money is that whenever you come onto the platform, these various agencies and state partners that we have as, as partners, they in turn are buying a block of verifications because they want they are in the business of knowing who's on their network, but we're doing it for them far cheaper than the 50 or $80. And they get the benefit of having access and equity for their network. They, they're dealing with a trusted identity that they're not going to be dealing with the fraud that came out of the pandemic. And they, they know exactly who they're dealing with when it says, I'm going to send this benefit to this person and I know who they are. They're an actual constituent. So what's really neat from a cost savings wise is let's say that I've only verified with one partner. Let's say I'm just a IRS customer. I go into IDME, I create my IL2 credential. I then go to IRS. Well, then let's say I want to go to Apple and I want to go or get a discount from Apple and I want to get a discount or I want to take advantage of a state benefit in the state of Colorado, let's say. All that has to happen there from an Apple and Colorado side, you're taking advantage of a verification that's already done. It's pre-verified is what it's referred to as. So you pay a much more even further discounted rate for that verification and you only pay it the one time. Sounds like an amazing service. Do do you track activity? I think you might have covered that earlier, but like if I'm on there and uh, on IDME and I'm getting some sort of discount from Apple and then I bounce over and use a different government agency or as you mentioned, fulfill a uh, prescription, is that activity tracked somehow? No, and I'll tell you why. It would actually violate the terms of service. So currently a lot of services within the data broker space that do um, authentication, that that activity is tracked and aggregated and then sold off. That's the purpose for that, right? You want to be able to market to those folks um, if you're in the data broker space. However, on the IDME side, we're in the credentialing space only. So with that being said, there's no type of trading or selling or renting of the data, nor your spending habits or wherever you're going to online. So it's a great, I guess, uh, user experience for the consumer. And then on the government agency or corporate side, how would ID me, and I, I'm asking this because I, I probably can already guess at it, but how would ID yeah. me have prevented some of the fraud that took place during the pandemic of people claiming benefits that weren't theirs? I mean, some of those some of those guys uh, walked away with hundreds of millions of dollars. State of Washington alone processed close to $400 million, this is just the state level, of unemployment claims. Which is kind of oh, crazy. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, nobody, well, no flags were were raised at all. You know, during the time when they were were writing the checks. So, how would IDME or a platform similar to IDME uh, prevent that? Well, look, and uh, thank you for bringing it up. And I'll tell you, I'm happy to go into this. It's it's rather crazy stories that we we look back on the COVID years, and obviously it impacted everybody so differently. And everybody has their own story when it comes to COVID, but it's getting lost just the hundreds of billions of dollars billions with a bravo with a b were lost during the pandemic uh the latest uh testimony that came out of the inspector general for the department of labor he put it at uh inspector general turner he put it at 191 billion dollars and he put a fraud rate on it of about 21 percent so it, from the department of labor side they're saying one for every four dollars or excuse me one for every five dollars went to 
a fraudster during the pandemic. So of the $877 billion that was printed, one out of every five went to fraud. That's a staggering, staggering. Statistic. It's depressing as heck, man. Especially because as we were discussing, it's, it's tax season and we're writing a check to the government and I'm like, okay, well. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I'll tell you though. So right at, during the pandemic, IDME was adopted by 26 states. So whenever the first program was put out for the unemployment checks, the Department of Labor lifted one critical thing. They wanted the checks to get out to people because people were in need, right? So they lifted the identity verification portion. Now, IDME adopted 26 states in a very short time span. The current IDME network today is over 100 million people. And at that time, we went through this hyper growth period because a lot of states were saying, oh my gosh, we've got this fraud problem. We need to bring somebody in. The Currently, right now, there's six states that publicly, they went out at the state level and publicly identified IDME as preventing $240 billion in fraud. And that's public awareness campaigns, public news. That's not IDME marketing talk. Six states, $240 billion. It's an incredible, credible number. With that, if you go and act the Department of Labor study that says, okay, well, it's a fraud rate of about 21%. If you look at their methodology that they used, they only looked at four states. So what they did was they took four states and they said, okay, well, of uh, in these four states, we had about a 20% fraud rate. So we're gonna apply that same fraud rate across every state, okay? IDME, like I said, at the time had 26 states. So we're in a little bit more unique position to say really how much fraud there was because we were seeing different states set us up differently. And so we were seeing fraud happen in real time if you consider the fact that maybe the state didn't want these more strict IL-2 controls. Maybe they wanted a softer uh, LOA-3 integration, right? And now if you go to the IL-2 rates, it just shuts down fraud completely. I mean, it really does a great job of getting at the fraud. And NIST was well ahead of their time whenever they planned this out. But um, we would probably, I, I would ask your, your audience and yourself, Mark, go Google road to losing $400 billion by our CEO. He puts it, there's charts, there's great uh, math in there and the formulas. You can go check out uh, pandemicoversight.gov as well. And it just shows you the amount of money that was printed and sent out, as well as the established fraud rate. The uh, over on the road to just, losing- Just in case I'm not, you're not depressed enough. Go ahead and read these articles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look. Uh, just for a little morning pick-me-up, you know. <laughs> just for a little morning pick-me-up. Yeah, look, uh, Mark, uh, in all seriousness, man, 877 billion went out to unemployment across three programs. IDME lays out on that road to losing 400 billion where it's probably closer to about 400 billion went to fraud. And the what we could have done with that money, who knows, right? I mean, I I, right. I pay attention to the homelessness uh, within the state of Arizona and um, they put the number to solve homelessness here locally at $8 billion. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, a lot of this, a lot of this fraud money went overseas and it, it is depressing. It is depressing. But getting back to your original question, talking about um, how brands can incorporate us and prevent fraud. We had a really great case study that happened with a very large tech company that had employed us to identify teachers. Uh, and they wanted to offer a discount to teachers in the classroom. And what was happening, they were getting people that were coming on and abusing the, basically they had some, this uh, before they had IDME, uh, the threat actor here had submitted fake documents to this tech company and said, I'm eligible for this discount. That person would then go in and buy 
thousands of dollars in tech equipment and then sell it out on the open market for a small write-up for, for a small markup. Now, once they came in with IDME, we have a document fraud program where we're doing the OCR polls. We're looking for any type of uh, forgeries, things like that. And they're able to shut that down and also see that they've got it. They had a lot of existing fraud already in their system. That's really the benefit of coming into the IDME network is you're not just getting fraud that occurs on your network. If I've got a fraud or threat actor that's attacking the internal revenue service from, let's say, Russia, I can take those same signatures, those same exploits that are attempting to be used, and I can apply that across the network and say, who else is going to could be hit with this? Well, I mean, it, it sounds like kind of a no-brainer for large organizations and government agencies who are interacting with their constituents via via the internet. What pushback do you get? I mean, why why aren't all government agencies and all lower, large uh, retail type organizations on using IDME? Look, I'll tell you, it we excel in the equity, access, and security side. Where I see the pushback, and I wish I would have really thought about this more as a as a cybersecurity practitioner. I would tell your audience as well as you, Mark, we've got to meet people where they are in their technical journey. And we we don't do a good job, at least in the tech space, of meeting people where we put out every October in Cybersecurity Awareness Month, we'll say, hey, MFA authentication, encrypt your data, uh, make backups for ransomware, things like this. And what we don't do is we don't take time to individualize it and say, this person may not, uh, and I, I don't want to harp on any of the politicians that I protected back in the Secret Service, but one of them back in 2016 asked me if I knew how to turn on their iPhone. That's, we've got to be prepared to make our technology accessible to everyone. Where IDME is excelling is we're, we're really good at verifying the unbanked, as an example. People that haven't had a bank account because they don't trust the banks or they, they're in a underrepresented community and they just don't have a credit profile. And with that, they're, they were getting left behind and a lot of verification systems, particularly on the data broker side, were leaving those folks behind. And whenever IDME stepped in, it's not just a credit profile that you need, right? Now we can go throughout this whole individual and take this whole person concept and apply it to a verification. However, I'll tell you where some scary stuff in the pushback comes. It's people thinking that these are an attack on civil liberties where, hey, you know, I my data's already out there or last year famously with the facial recognition piece where we did have a facial recognition program where we were doing one to end and a lot of people are saying, look, this falsely identifies uh, certain populations and we want to stop using it. So we stopped using it. And we've got to be more cognizant as security professionals that we need to meet folks where they are in their technical journey. And that some of these technologies are quite intimidating. I think we get trapped in our bubble of uh, talking in a room and, and saying like, oh, yeah, we're going to come up, we're going to innovate here, we're going to uh, bring this forward, not understanding that some people just aren't ready for that. Well, I guess it makes a lot of sense. But are you saying that the government agencies that aren't on board with ID Media, that's what they're saying is, hey, our constituents, they're not ready for something like this. And so we're not ready either. Is that is that what you're saying? Oh, inter you know, interesting. So I'll tell you, the the National Cybersecurity Strategy, Strategy came out last week. And then three days later, GSA, right? This is the the, the main supplier for all of the federal government. 
they, the GSA Inspector General did a report where login.gov, which is the government solution to uh, online credentialing, they had to admit in the, due to the IG report that they had misled other federal agencies for identity verification services. I mean, this is crazy. You've got a, a government agency quite literally my, uh, lying to another federal agency about their capabilities. And if we can't just have one conversation about, hey, implement an IL2 credential, let's have a shared space, give, give options out to the greater public and have people make a choice on what they, who, who they want to mint their credential with and then go forth and conquer. So I don't think we're doing a good job there, especially from a federal side of the house. I'm glad that uh, the White House and Congress is all about digital identity right now. I'm glad it's getting attention. It, we're in a very interesting spot in terms of the political environment where digital identity is at the forefront because of all the fraud that occurred during the pandemic. But then whenever you've got the main vendor within the government lying to other federal agencies about being compliant with federal standards, that's not a good look. Government agency not telling the truth. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm not going to go there. Hey, so um, it's funny because I, I, I'm reading a book right now. It's called The Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. And it's yeah, it's kind of like a historical fiction, but it's looking forward instead of looking back. And it's it's written as a nonfiction book, but it's, I don't know, it's somewhat uh, based in, well, a lot based in reality and future capabilities and so on. One of the topics that is often discussed in the book is a sovereign identity. And it sounds a little bit like, you know, what IDME is providing, but there's probably some some key differences there. And I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are in terms of achieving some type of sovereign identity, you know, using a blockchain that allows people to kind of own and manage their identity and in a, in a fully, you know, encrypted, secure manner, quote unquote. And then, you know, it, it, in this book, it even goes on farther and says, once you own your identity, then you have the ability to let your identity be marketed to. Instead of data brokers selling your identity and, and, and making profiting amongst themselves, you have the ability to allow yourself to be marketed to and you receive revenues from the agencies who are trying to target mm. you so it's a it's a pretty cool concept but if we just go back to the sovereign identity versus you know the idme solution what are the or if there are any what are the major differences i'm gonna have to get the what was the ministry of what the ministry of the future by kim the stanley Min robinson yeah i'm a big reader that's gonna be awesome um that sounds i i gotta take you back to 2014 whenever i first met our ceo the uh, he was at a veterans incubator for startups. Yeah, his name's Blake Hall. The uh, and he was briefing President Obama, who at the time was, of course, this is all about digital identity during this. You're going to say was at the time trying to figure out how to turn on his iPhone. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it, it was not him. It was not him. Not him. Okay. Promise. Okay. Good. Yeah, no, it's not him. <laughs> at any rate, so uh, no, so Blake was briefing President Obama on uh, credentialing and trusted identities in cyberspace. And I remember him saying uh, a customer that uses their credential at a would-be partner should get some type of rebate for consenting to that partner. And what IDME has done is that vision where you can participate in cashback programs at various partners. If you go in there and create an identity, 
what have you, whether it be buying a mattress, buying a pillow, whatever you're doing, but there's various partners. There's over 500 partners on the community side. And with that, you're getting that rebate back for consenting and using your identity with that vendor. So that's the first crack at that. I really, really like that concept. Uh, it's the second time I've heard it discussed. You're the second and Blake's the first. So I do like that concept as well. Specific to I think a lot of people would like it because I mean, you know, right now, I mean, who gives, I mean, we got the, the data brokers, but we also have the credit reporting agencies without our permission. And oftentimes, you know, based upon erroneous reporting, they, they can really mess with people's lives. Right. And, oh, and, yeah. and, and then, and then you have the marketing, uh, or there's using the data brokers who are profiting from our something that we should own. I mean, if we take the European standpoint, uh, that data is ours. Right. So, 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 you know, why is it that they can, without any permission, and I know America is kind of the wild west in terms of, you know, <laughs> consumer rights and all that kind of stuff. And it is, it seems to be that there's some momentum um, kind of growing in terms of protecting, you know, our, our personal data, but I, th I think we have a long ways to go. Yeah. First of all, not real quick. I'll tell you, we're, we're missing a federal data privacy law, quite mm -hmm. frankly. And IDME threw some weight behind it last year, uh, trying to get that passed. It, it was in Congress. Uh, Mark, I would challenge you and your audience, go look at, uh, IDME did a great write-up on why we need one, and go look at who's spending to not get that through. It's uh, it's not a pretty picture. And I would also tell you that there's, there's states that have done a great job, at least at taking steps towards data privacy, right? You're in one of them, Mark, right? And... I appreciate the fact that states are taking the lead here and saying, hey, we got to do something to, to control this data. Additionally, that makes it for a very non-competitive environment when if you're a small business, well, there's no federal guideline for me to adhere to unless you're, you know, you're conforming to PCI or GDPR. But what does a would-be small business do whenever they've got customers in Washington, Illinois, Colorado and California, they've got to conform to all those state data privacy laws. And that's a very, very expensive proposition, as you can imagine. So that's the first part of that. The, the idea that you're going to ask a small mom and pop business to adhere to those is just kind of outlandish. So I would really like to see the federal government take the lead and pass a data privacy law. And, and kind of with that, there was a really great, the FTC fined a data broker last year and one of the key takeaways that I, I took out of that is that the average data broker has roughly 300 data points on every American, every single American. With that, there was one really just crazy highlight out of there, and it was highlighting the fact of they had it broken down at the data broker level for elderly and gullible. And they would take that list of elderly and gullible, and then they would sell that to online gambling sites. And I'm like, I'm like, what kind of a world are we living in where we're monetizing this? It just, it, it hints at, I don't like where that industry is heading and it's not getting any better. And so now more than ever, I'd like for people to assert their own identity. Well, you know, and then you throw in social engineering and some of the AI based tools that allow for not just voice recognition, but dubbing and voice impersonation. And you get these eld elderly and gullible who get a phone call from their long lost grandson saying, hey, grandma, I need uh, some help, you know, and uh, it's it's it is pretty scary. But I and I think 
that God, we got to do a better job of educating everybody. And like you said, yeah. meeting people where they are. What, how does IDME help with, or does it help with any of the issues related to voting? You know, not yet. And you know, this this country more than others, there's uh, there are identity verification platforms in other countries that handle voting. This country is not one of them. Any type of uh, voter ID law has previously been shut down in Congress before. But uh, currently, IDME does not do any type of partnership with voting. Yeah, interesting. So let me just kind of close this up then. Just talking to consumers out there, what are like one or two, three things that they should do today to kind of go out and protect their identity? Okay, here's what I want people to do. And again, it's going to sound like I'm biased, but this is my this is what I would do as my plan of attack. I'm going to create an IDME IL2 account. Why am I going to do this? I want to see if somebody is asserting my identity online without my permission. Has somebody tried to take my identity or have taken my identity? And if so, IDME has an outlet for you where we're going to help you rebuild your identity if somebody did steal your identity out there, okay? So go to IDME, create an IL2 credential. Again, log on there. It's very seamless, pretty seamless transaction. Doesn't take more than a few minutes. So that's the first thing. Second, in your daily lives, what are you putting out there that can identify you? It's no longer name, social security number, date of birth. It's how long have you had your current cell phone number? It's your IP address from your house that you're connecting to the internet with. Uh, it's the grocery store that you shop at. All of these things are being uh, actively monetized, aggregated by data brokers out there. While you did mention, uh, and I was telling you how IDME does not integrate with voting, it should stand uh, to reason that data brokers do have that information. Data brokers do know your political affiliation. They do market to you accordingly like that. So recognize what you're putting out there. And also with that, the social media side of the house. I mentioned at the top that I do not have a LinkedIn account. It is nothing against any of the social media platforms, though I, I think they do need some identity verification. I'm sure Elon Musk does as well, but I digress. It's just the fact that there is a lot of nation state actors on these platforms that are attempting to uh, subvert trust in American democracy. And with that, people need to understand that, yes, America does become the target of attacks from nation state actors, your Russia's, your China's, near peer competitors, as it were, but also recognize that the most important part of a democracy is the trust from the constituent to the government. And if that is broken, that is really the foundation of democracy that goes away. So we're all a part of this, and we need, we need to demand that we take control of our identity. You know, I think those are some excellent points. Um, great advice. And I also like the commentary, you know, um, the importance of trust in democracy. And I think we can all do our part to kind of foster or increase or improve that trust because really it's, it's taken a big hit these days. And yeah. even if it's just, if it's just saying, Hey, you know what, uh, we have confirmation or high degree of, of trust that this is, this person is who they say they are and that our identity is not going to be compromised. That just one piece of the puzzle that, that is, is being fixed. So thank you for, uh, for your time and thank you and, and the rest of the IDME team for uh, what you guys are doing. Yeah, absolutely. We have a, a dedicated team of engineers, data scientists, and investigators that are truly all about protecting uh, Americans. So thank you. Thanks for having us. Hey, uh, Mark, you didn't ask me for any book recommendation. You better, you better, you better ask. Uh, well, I'm asking, what's the book recommendation? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So 
people, uh, I, you, you talk a lot about leadership, which is why I like this podcast a whole lot. I, I appreciate that, especially in a tech space, right? And um, I want people to check out Team of Rivals. That is uh, The Genius of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, that's by uh, Doris Goodwin. And also, please check out uh, Team of Teams, New Rules of Engagement for a Complex World by General Stanley McChrystal. Awesome. Team of Teams. Hey, and, and just, I mean, now we're on this topic. Uh, yeah. you, did, you did mention, I don't know if it was a newsletter or some type of org uh, that right at the top of the podcast that you said is a great information source. Yeah, I tell you, though. Do go out and check out uh, fcw.com. So that's where Jeremy Grant wrote an article in reference to, uh, he's part of the Better Identity Coalition, came out of Venable. He was also an author of that uh, National Strategy for Trusted Identities in Cyberspace. He wrote an article, an op-ed last week in FCW, which is um, where they publish a lot of news op-eds on government technology. He did a great write-up on the GSA uh, debacle when they were lying to federal agencies. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that tip, and I appreciate the uh, the book tips as well. Hey, JT, it's right been on. great talking with you. You too, Mark. Thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. Hello. Welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.